Chapter Sixteen of the Four Faces by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Sixteen: Secrets of Dusky Fowl. To this day, that drive to Paddington recalls to mind a nightmare. The entire confidence I had placed in Dulcie was shattered. Had anybody told me it was possible she could deceive me as she had done I should, I know, have insulted him, so infuriated should I have felt at the bare thought. And yet she clearly had deceived me, deceived me most horribly, inasmuch as she had done it in such cold blood and obviously with premeditation. Her eyes, which had always looked at me, as I thought so truthfully, had gazed into mine that morning with the utmost coolness and self-possession while she deliberately lied to me. Dulcie, a liar! The words kept stamping themselves into my brain until my head throbbed and seemed on the point of bursting. As the car sped along through the busy streets I saw nothing, heard nothing. The remarks she made to me seemed to reach my brain against my will. I answered them mechanically in, for the most part, monosyllables. What did it all mean? How could she continue to address me as though nothing in the least unusual had occurred? Did she notice nothing in my manner that appeared to be unusual? True, she addressed to me no term of endearment, which was singular, but so engrossed was I in my introspection and in my own misery that I scarcely noticed this. Indeed, had she spoken to me fondly, her doing so just then would but have increased the feeling of bitterness which obsessed me. Several times during that drive I had been on the point of telling her all I knew, all I had seen and heard. The suspicions I entertained regarding her friend Connie, her abominable friend as she now seemed to me to be, the grave suspicions I entertained also regarding Gastrell, with whom she seemed to be on good terms, to say the least, these indeed were more than suspicions. But at the crucial moment my courage had failed me. How could I say all this, or even hint at it, in the face of all I now knew concerning Dulcie herself? Dulcie, who had been so much to me, who was so much to me still, though I tried hard to persuade myself that everything between us must now be considered at an end? I saw her off at Paddington. Mechanically I kissed her. Why I did I cannot say, for I felt no desire to. It was, I suppose, that instinctively I realized that if I failed to greet her then in the way she would expect me to, she would suspect that I knew something. She had asked me during our drive through the streets of London who had told me where to find her. But what I answered I cannot recollect. I made, I believe, some random reply which apparently satisfied her. For two hours I lay upon my bed in my flat in South Moulton Street, tossing restlessly, my mind distraught, my brain on fire. Never before had I been in love, and perhaps for that reason I felt this cruel blow, my disillusionment the more severely. Once or twice my man, Simon, knocked, then tried the door and found it locked, then called out to ask if anything were amiss with me. I scarcely heard him and did not answer. I wanted to be left alone, left in complete solitude to suffer my deep misery unseen and unheard. I suppose I must have slept at last, in bed at three and up at eight, my night had been a short one, for when presently I opened my eyes I saw that the time was half-past two. Then the thought flashed in upon me that in my telegram 
I had promised to go to Eton to see Dick by the train leaving Paddington at three. I had barely time to catch it. A thorough wash restored me to some extent to my normal senses, and at Paddington I bought a sandwich which served that day instead of lunch. Once or twice before I had been down to Eton to see Dick, though on those occasions I had been accompanied by Sir Roland. I had little difficulty now in obtaining leave to take him out to tea. He wanted to speak to me quite privately, he said, as we walked arm in arm up the main street, so I decided to take him to the White Hart, and there I ordered tea in a private room. Now, Mike, he said in a confidential tone when at last we were alone, this is what I want to draw your attention to, and as he spoke he produced a rather dirty envelope from his trousers pocket, opened it, and carefully shook out on the table several newspaper cuttings, each three or four lines in length. "'What on earth are those about, old boy?' I asked, surprised. "'Newspaper advertisements, aren't they?' "'Yes. Out of the Morning Post, all on the front page. If you will wait a minute I will put them all in order. The date of each is written on the back, and then you will see if things strike you in the way they have struck me.' These were the cuttings. R.P. B.J.P.T.N. B.B.L.X. W.A.M.I.I. XVZZJV, OKK, ZXXP, Dusky Fowl. RLXT, EX, LNVRB, 4, ZCOKK, ZBPL, GC, PTFRD, AVNSP, HVFBL, UCAQKOGGWX, Dusky Fowl. PLT, ECII, PVOA, T1VP, UYSAA, DJT, XRU, PRZVF, 4, Dusky Fall, NVNNTL, TMMS, PVVVDNZZPN, YCYSWSA, BPIX, U Y Y U Q E C G S Q A X W L J F H S C J V T Z F H D V B Dusky Fall. I can't make head or tail of them, I said, when I had looked carefully at each and endeavored to unravel its secret, for obviously it must possess some secret meaning. What do you make of them, Dick? Anything? Yes, look, and I will show you, he answered going to the writing-table and bringing over pen, ink, and paper. I have always been fond of discovering, or trying to discover, the meanings of these queer cyber messages you see sometimes in some newspapers, and I have become rather good at it. I have a book that explains the way ciphers are usually constructed. I have found out a good many at one time and another, but this one took me rather a long time to disentangle. I can tell you, Mike, that when I found it concerned you, I felt frightfully excited. "'Concerned me?' I exclaimed. "'Oh, nonsense! What is this all about?' "'Follow me carefully, and I'll show you. I guessed from the first that it must be one of those ciphers that start their alphabet with some letter other than A. But this one has turned out to be what my book calls a complex alphabet cipher. I tried and tried all sorts of ways. I began the alphabet by calling B.A., then by calling C.A., then by calling D.A., and so on all the way through, but that was no good. 
Then I tried the alphabet backwards, calling Z-A, then Y-A, right back to A. But that wasn't it either. Then I tried one or two other ways, and at last I started skipping the letters first backwards and then forwards. Doing it forwards, when I got to L, I found that I had got something. I called L-A, N-B, P-C, and so on, and made out B-J-P-T-N-B-B-L-X, the first word in the first cipher to be the word IMPROVING, and the two letters before it in capitals R-P, to be really D-C. The next cipher word, W-A-M-I-I, stumped me, as the code didn't make it sense. Then it occurred to me to start the alphabet with M instead of L, skipping every alternate letter as before, and I made out W-A-M-I-I to mean shall. The next cipher word, X-V-Z-Z-J-V, I couldn't get sense out of it by starting the alphabet with either L or M, so I tried the next letter, N, skipping alternate letters once more, and that gave me the word settle. I knew then that I had got the key, and I soon had the whole sentence. It ran as follows. D.C. improving, shall settle all soon, dusky fall. Still, I wasn't the much wiser, and it never for a moment occurred to me that D.C. stood for Dulcie Challoner. Good heavens, Dick, I cried. You don't mean to tell me that, Dulcie. Do be patient, brother-in-law, and let me go through the whole thing before you interrupt with your ejaculations, Dick said calmly. Well, four days went by, and then in the morning post of February 7th the second advertisement appeared. R-L-X-T, E-X, S-R-O-E-H-N-E-L, 28, Z-C-O-K-K, Z-B-P-L, G-C, P-T-F-R-D, A-V-N-S-P, H-V-F-V-L, U-C-A-Q-K-O-G-G-W-X, Dusky Fall. The code was the same as the first, and I deciphered it quite easily. Here it is, and he read from a bit of paper he held in his hand. Date is February 28th. Shall stay at Mount Royal Hotel, Bedlington. Dusky Fall. There was nothing more after that until February 12th, when the third advertisement appeared. Same code. Here it is deciphered. Car will be at Clun Cross today, February 28th. Dusky Fall. That dusky fall bothered me a lot. I couldn't think what it meant. Several times I had gone through the names of all the dusky birds I could think of, blackbird, rook, crow, raven, and so on, but nothing struck me, nothing seemed to make sense. Then the next day, yesterday, an advertisement in the same code appeared which startled me a lot, because your name and Mr. Osborne's were in it, and it didn't take me long then to get at the meaning of dusky fall. Here is the advertisement from yesterday's morning post, and directly I had read it I wrote that letter asking you to come to see me at once, or to let me come to you. He read out, Osborne and Barrington suspect. Take precautions. D.C. with me. Hampstead. Dusky Fowl. Dusky Fowl evidently stands for Rook, and Rook for Rook Hotel, and Rook Hotel for Mrs. Stapleton. And that being the case, who else can D.C. stand for but Dulcie Challoner? It's as plain as a pikestaff. By Jove, Dick, I said after a few moments' pause, I believe you are right. I am sure I am right, he answered with complete self-assurance. This clearly was a most important discovery. I decided to take the cuttings and their solutions to Osborne the moment I got back to town, 
and I intended to go back directly after delivering Dick safely back at his school. Really, I exclaimed, feeling now almost excited as the boy, you are pretty clever old chap to have found out all that. I wonder, though, why Mrs. Stapleton doesn't telegraph or write to the man or people these messages are intended for. It would be much simpler. It wouldn't be safe, Mike. I read in a book once that people of that sort, the kind of people Mr. Osborne always speaks of as scoundrels, nearly always communicate in some sort of cipher, and generally by advertising, because letters are so dangerous. They may miscarry or be stopped or traced, and then they might get used as evidence against the people who wrote them. By communicating in cipher and through a newspaper, of course, no risk of any sort is run. Except when the ciphers get deciphered, I said, as you have deciphered these. Oh, but then people seldom waste time the way I do, trying to find these things out. When they do, it's generally a fluke if they come across the key. It took me hours to disentangle the first of those advertisements. The rest came easy enough. All this conversation had distracted my mind a good deal, and I began to feel better. For several minutes I was silent, wrapped in thought, and Dick had tact enough not to interrupt me. I was mentally debating if Dick might not, in more ways than one, prove a useful associate with Osborne, Preston, and myself in our task of unveiling the gang of clever rogues and getting them convicted. One thing which had struck me at once, but that I had not told Dick, for fear of exciting him too much, was that Bedlington was the large town nearest to Eldon Hall, the Earl of Cranmere's seat, the place the mysterious unseen man in the house in Grafton Street had asked Jack Osborne about while he lay bound upon the bed. Also that February 28th was the date when Cranmere's eldest son would come of age, on which day a week's festivities at Eldon would begin, and festivities at Eldon were events to be remembered, I had been told. What most occupied my thoughts, however, was the question I had asked myself. Should I make a confidant of little Dick and tell him how things now stood between Dulcie and myself? "'Dick, old boy,' I said at last, "'I wonder if I can treat you as I would a grown man, as I would treat some grown men, I should say.' "'I dare say you could, brother-in-law,' he answered. "'Why don't you try?' supposing that you were not to become my brother-in-law, as you seem so fond of calling me. Would you be sorry? I jolly well think I should, he replied, looking up sharply. But what makes you say a thing like that? It's all rot, isn't it? He seemed, as he looked at me with his big brown eyes, which were so like Dulcie's, to be trying to discover if I spoke in jest or partly in earnest. You are going to marry Dulcie, aren't you? You're not going to break it off. You haven't had a row or anything of that kind. No, not exactly a row, I said, staring into his nice frank face. Then why do you talk about not becoming my brother-in-law? If you don't marry Dulcie, you'll jolly nearly kill her. You don't know how fearfully fond of you she is. You can't know, or you wouldn't talk about not marrying her. I haven't talked about not marrying her, I answered hurriedly. Tell me, Dick. Is it true what you say about her being so awfully fond of me? I shouldn't say it if it wasn't true, he said with a touch of pride. But what did you mean when you said you wondered if you would treat me as if I were a man? I put my arm round the lad as he stood at the table and drew him close to me. Dick, old boy, I said with a catch in my voice, I am very unhappy, and I believe Dulcie is too, 
and I believe it is possible you may be able to put things right if you set about it in the right way. But first tell me, you have talked to Mrs. Stapleton. Do you like her? I have never liked her from the first time she talked to me, he answered without an instant's hesitation, and I don't like her any the better since I have heard you and Mrs. Osborne talking about her, and since I spotted her in that advertisement yesterday. Well, Dick, I went on, Mrs. Stapleton and Dulcie are now tremendous friends, and I believe that Mrs. Stapleton is trying to make Dulcie dislike me. I believe she says things about me to Dulcie that are untrue, and I think that Dulcie believes some of the things she is told. What a beastly shame! But oh no, Mike, Dulcie wouldn't believe anything about you that was nasty. My word, I'd like to see anyone say nasty things to her about you. I am glad you think that, but still, anyway, certain things have happened which I can't explain to you, and I am pretty sure Dulcie likes me less than she did. I want you to try to find that out and to tell me. Will you try to if I can manage to get you a weekend at home? Will I? You try me, Mike, and I won't only try to find out, I shall find out. It was six o'clock when I arrived back at Eton with Dick. Word was sent to me that the headmaster would like to speak to me before I left. He came into the room a few minutes afterwards, told Dick to go away and return in ten minutes, then shut the door and came over to me. He looked extremely grave. Half an hour ago I received this telegram, he said, pulling one out of his pocket and handing it to me. As I know you to be an intimate friend of Sir Roland's, you may like to read it before I say anything to Dick. I unfolded the telegram. It had been handed in at Newbury at five o'clock and ran, My daughter suddenly taken seriously ill. Dick must return at once. My butler will await him under the clock on Paddington departure platform at 7.15, and bring him down here. Please see that Dick is under clock at 7.15 this evening without fail. Challoner. I read the telegram twice, and even then I seemed unable to grasp its full significance. Dulcie, seriously ill. Good God, what had happened to her? When we had parted on Paddington platform only a few hours before, she had appeared to be in perfect health. Had this sudden attack, whatever it might be, any connection with Mrs. Stapleton or with that hateful affair that I had witnessed the night before, my darling Dulcie gambling recklessly and losing, and then borrowing, from a woman I now fully believed to be an adventurous, money to go on gambling with. Was it even possible that, beside herself with dismay at the large amount of money she now owed Mrs. Stapleton, she had in a sudden moment of madness attempted to take... I almost cried out as I banished from my brain the hideous thought. Oh, God, anything rather than that. I must get further news, and without a moment's loss of time. I must telegraph or telephone to Holt. The headmaster's calm voice recalled me to my senses. It is indeed terrible news, he said sympathetically, struck no doubt at the grief which the news had stamped upon my face. But it may, after all, be less serious than Sir Roland thinks. I was about to suggest, Mr. Barrington, he went on, pulling out his watch, that, as you are, I take it, returning to London by the 625, you might take Dick up with you and place him in charge of Sir Roland's butler, who will be awaiting him at a quarter past seven under the clock on Paddington platform. If you can be so very kind as to do this, it will obviate the necessity of my sending someone to London with him. I have given an order for such things as he may require to be packed, and they should be ready by now. 
we must break the news very gently to the boy, for I know that he is devoted to his sister, so, for the boy's sake, Mr. Berrington, try to bear up. I know, of course, the reason of your deep grief, for Dick has told me that you were engaged to be married to his sister. Hardly knowing what I said, I agreed to do as he suggested and see Dick safely to Paddington. How we broke the news to him, and how he received it when we did break it, I hardly recollect. All I remember distinctly is standing at a telephone call office in Edentown and endeavouring to get through to Holt Manor. Not until it was nearly time for the London train from Windsor to start did the telephone exchange inform me they had just ascertained that the line to Holt Manor was out of order and that they could not get through. Anathematizing the telephone and all that had to do with it, I hurried out to the taxi in which Dick sat awaiting me. All the way from Windsor to London we exchanged hardly a word. Dick, I knew, was terribly upset at the news, for his devotion to his sister was as well known to me as it was to his father and to Aunt Hannah. But he was a plucky little chap and tried hard not to show how deeply the news had affected him. For my part my brain was in a tumult. To think that I should have parted from her that morning with feelings of resentment in my heart and that now she lay possibly at death's door. Again and again I cursed myself for my irritability, my suspicions. Were they, after all, unjust suspicions? Might Dulcie not have excellent reasons to give for all that had occurred the night before? Might she not have been duped and taken to that house under wholly false pretenses? An uncle of hers believed to be dead, a brother of Sir Roland's had, I knew, been a confirmed gambler. There was much in heredity, I reflected, in spite of modern theories to the contrary. Was it not within the bounds of possibility that Dulcie, taken to that gambling den by her infamous companion, and encouraged by her to play, might suddenly have felt within her the irresistible craving that no man or woman born a gambler has yet been able to overcome? and in any case what right had I had, metaphorically, to sit in judgment upon her and jump to conclusions which might be wholly erroneous? The train travelled at express speed through Slough, Ditcott, and other small stations. It was within a mile of London when my thoughts suddenly drifted. Why had Sir Roland not sent James direct to Windsor to meet Dick, instead of wasting time by sending him all the way to London? But perhaps James had been in town that day, he came up sometimes, and Sir Roland had wired to him there. Again, why had he not sent the car to Eton to fetch Dick away? That would have been the quicker plan. Ah, of course he would have done that had it been possible, but probably the car had been sent into Newbury to fetch the doctor. That, indeed, was probably what had happened, for the telegram had been handed it at Newbury instead of at Holt Stacy. I knew that Sir Roland's chauffeur had a poor memory, it was well known to be his chief fault. Probably he had shot through Holt Stacy, forgetting all about the telegram he had been told to send off there, and, upon his arrival in Newbury, remembered it and at once dispatched it. Sir Roland had, I knew, a rooted dislike to telephoning telegraphic messages direct to the post office, and I had never yet known him dictate a telegram through his telephone. Oh, how provoking, I said again, mentally, as I thought of the telephone, that the instrument should have got out of order on this day of all days, the one day when I had wanted so urgently to use it. Now the train was slowing down. 
It was rattling over the points as it passed into the station. Looking out of the window I could see the clock on the departure platform. A few people were strolling near it, but nobody was under it, at least no man. I could see a woman standing under it, apparently a young woman. Dick's luggage consisted of a suitcase which we had taken into the carriage with us, and this I now carried for him as we descended into the subway. The clock on the departure platform is only a few yards from the exit of the subway, and, as we came out, the woman under the clock was not looking in our direction. Somehow her profile seemed familiar, and I stopped abruptly, and catching Dick by the arm, pulled him quickly behind a pile of luggage on a truck. An amazing thought had flashed into my brain. As quickly as I could I gathered my scattered wits. Dick, I said, after a few moments' reflection, trying to keep my brain cool, I believe I have an idea all isn't right. There is no sign of James, though our train was some minutes late, and it is now twenty past seven. James was to be here at a quarter past, according to that telegram. But that woman waiting there, I know her by sight, though I have never spoken to her. She might remember me by sight, so I don't want her to see me. Now, look here, I want you to do this. Take hold of your suitcase, and as soon as that woman's back is turned, walk up and stand under the clock near her as though you were awaiting someone. Don't look at her or speak to her. I believe this is some trick. I don't believe that telegram was sent by your father at all. I don't believe Dulcie is ill. I think that woman is waiting for you, and that when you have been there a few moments she will speak to you, probably ask you if you are Master Challoner, and then tell you that she has been sent instead of James to meet you, and ask you to go with her. If she does that, don't look in the least surprised, answer her quite naturally. You can inquire if you like how Dulcie is, though I shall not be a bit surprised if we find her at home perfectly well, and if she asks you to go with her, go. Don't be at all frightened, old chap. I shall follow and be near you all the time, whatever happens. And look here, if I have guessed aright, and she does say that she has been asked to meet you and tells you to come along with her, just put your hand behind you for an instant as you are walking away, and then I shall know. Oh, Mike, if Dulcie isn't ill, if, after all, nothing has happened to her. His feelings overcame him, and he could not say more. I moved a little to one side of the pile of trunks and peered out. "'Now, Dick, now!' I exclaimed, as I saw the woman turn her back to us. Dick marched up to her, carrying his suitcase, and waited under the clock just as I had told him to. He had not been there ten seconds when I saw the woman step up to him and speak to him. They exchanged one or two remarks, then, turning, walked away together. And as they walked, Dick's hand went up behind his back, and he scratched an imaginary flea. Instantly I began to walk slowly after them. Dick was being taken away by the dark, demure, quietly dressed little woman I had seen at Connie Stapleton's dinner party, and only the night before, standing among the onlookers in Gastrell's house in Cumberland Place. End of chapter 16 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobook.com